Hey guys, it is the true crime Taurus Hannah back here today with some more true crime goodness for you. Um, I know it's been a long time since I posted for those of you who do listen. Um, it's been a while since I've posted. I've had this episode planned out and um, most of the script written out for a while now. I just I, I've been having trouble finding the time to go over everything, double check all my facts. I like to fact check as much as possible and make sure that I'm being as accurate as possible and reading up. Um, it's not hard. It just takes a lot of time to do it. So I apologize for that. I'm also getting married next week. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, got that going on as well. Trying to finish out all the plans for that. Um, I have a couple announcements about the podcast, I guess. So the first three episodes that I've done, they've been pretty structured. I, I really want this podcast to be fun and I want it to be relaxed. I really want to open up a dialogue about this kind of stuff. So I think from here on out, I'm going to try to be a little bit less, less formal about it. I might have like my sister hang out with me while I record and that way I can kind of get her feedback and you know, get her reaction on stuff because she doesn't know about all of these cases. Um, I might have my fiance jump in from time to time. So we'll see. Um, you know, it's still a work in progress and this has been a really great hobby for me so far and I'm excited to keep doing it. So with that being said, let's jump in to the podcast today. Okay. So the first three episodes, which were the Appalachian Trail murders, the murder of Skylar Niece, and then the heartbreaking, heartbreaking April Tinsley case, which, which gets me every time. Um, so in all three of those cases, there's been a level of closure that goes along with the cases. We know who the killer or killers were. Um, most of our questions about the case have been answered eventually. So I want you to take all of that resolution and throw it out the window because today's case has so many loose ends, so many rabbit holes, so many questions that I, I don't have answers to. It is an unsolved case. It remains unsolved. I could have gone down every single rabbit hole, but I tried to keep it as streamlined as possible. So we've all heard the campfire story about the cabin in the woods where there's a group of people and they're always either vacationing or people are stranded in the woods and happen upon a cabin for shelter and the nights always take a sinister turn and the group ends up being slowly taken out by a crazed killer for seemingly no reason as the night continues, right? We can look at movies like The Strangers as reference. Well, Today's case serves as a basis for a lot of those stories. That's right. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the killer in Cabin 28, otherwise known as the Ketty Cabin Murders. So this case has a lot of different factors at play and a lot of different names to remember. I'm going to kind of structure today's podcast a little bit differently. Um, I was thinking about how I was going to tell this case in the most simple way to understand without you being able to see anyone's faces as reference. And this is the best way I could think of. So the case surrounds around a family of six. It's a mother and her five children. And then there's a couple of family friends that are there as well. Let's start with the mother. Her name is Glenna Sharp, but she goes by the name Sue. At the time of her death, she was 36 years old. Her children were John, uh, who was 15 years old, Sheila, who was 14, Tina, who was 12, Ricky, who was 10, 
and the youngest, Greg, who was five. Sue's husband and the kids' dad, who was a man named Jim, he was extremely abusive and harmful to Sue and the children. In 1979, the family lived in Connecticut when Sue's abusive husband, Jim, kicked Sue and all the children out of their house. After being kicked out of the house, the now family of six was forced to all cram into a trailer and make do with their horrible situation. But in November of 1980, Sue was thrilled to finally be able to give her children a home in Northern California near where her brother Don lived. And that was so much better suited for them than all being cramped in the one-bedroom trailer. Their new home was one of a large number of cabins. Their cabin was cabin 28, to be exact. It was located in Keddie, California. The cabin was still small, but there were plenty of neighbors and other kids their age who lived nearby, and it seemed like seemed like their family was kind of on the up and up. You know, she had escaped this abusive situation. She was living close to family now. She was trying to give her kids the best life that they could possibly have. So on the night of the murders, which was April 11th, 1981, Sue's oldest son, John, and one of his friends, who was a 17-year-old boy named Dana Wingate, they were hanging out at a nearby town called Quincy. Sue and her oldest daughter, Sheila, went to go pick up John and Dana from Quincy at about 1.30 in the afternoon and brought them back to the cabin in Ketty. Two hours later, at about 3.30, John and Dana actually hitchhiked back to Quincy to hang out with some friends, and witnesses can confirm that John and Dana were in Quincy that evening at a party. Sue, the mother, stayed at home with her youngest sons, Rick and Greg, and they were having a neighbor boy by the name of Justin, who was 12 years old, stay the night with them. Justin lived two cabins down from them, and Sue was friends with Justin's mom, so sleepovers were a common occurrence. The daughters... Sheila and Tina were at a friend's house hanging out, and Sheila ended up staying the night at that friend's house, but Tina wasn't allowed to. So she came back home to cabin 28 at around 9.30 that night. So John and Dana were at the party in Quincy, and they had plans for Dana to just stay the night with John that night. Um, and it said that they actually arrived back at cabin 28 around midnight. So... I know that was all confusing to listen to, so I'll repeat the logistics again. Sue, her two youngest sons, Rick and Greg, and their friend Justin Smart were all at the cabin. Sheila and Tina were at a friend's house. Sheila stayed the night at her friend's house, but Tina walked back home. John and his friend Dana were out for most of the night, but returned home to cabin 28 around midnight. The next morning, April 12th of 1981, which was a Sunday morning, Sheila was going to go to church with her friend who she stayed the night with, but she had to walk back home to cabin 28 to get some church clothes. So she got back home between 7 and 7.30 in the morning. It's kind of unclear. Some reports say closer to 7, 7.05, and some reports say like 7.20. Um, but the window we know is between 7 and 7.30 that she got back home. She walked into the living room and into a living nightmare. In the living room, she saw two bloody bodies on the floor that had been tied up, blood all over the carpet, all over the walls, and a blanket in the corner that looked like it had been thrown over possibly a third body. So Sheila 
freaked out. She ran to her neighbor's house and shouted for help. And while her neighbors called the police, Sheila went back into the cabin to look into the bedrooms, which both stood right off of the living room. I I have no idea what she thought she was going to find in her little brother's bedroom, but I'm sure she was more than shocked to find her little brothers, Greg and Rick, and their friend Justin, still sound asleep in their beds. The boys originally were thought to have slept through the entire incident, but we'll get back to that later. Sheila and the neighbor that she asked for help were luckily able to use a window in the boys' bedroom to get them out of the cabin so that they wouldn't have to walk through the gruesome scene in the living room. It wasn't until after getting the boys out of the house that Sheila realized her little sister Tina was nowhere to be found. At approximately 8 a.m., the first officer arrived on scene. When he got there, he did a small sweep through the cabin and just outside of the cabin and began to try to piece together the events that unfolded that night. Around 8.25, a second officer arrived on scene and pretty much repeated what the first officer did. He did a quick sweep of the crime scene, and then he also began to do some preliminary interviews of witnesses and neighbors. During these interviews, they learned that a next-door neighbor supposedly heard the sounds of like a muffled scream the night before, but by the time the couple got out of bed to investigate, the screaming had stopped, so they just went back to bed. It only took until about 8.30 in the morning for the crime scene to be officially considered a triple homicide. A few minutes later, Sue's brother Don was at the scene talking to police. Naturally, the police started to ask the exact questions that you would expect them to ask. What kind of stuff was Sue into? Did she have any bad relationships with people? People who would want to hurt her or her family? And Don informs them that there is almost no possibility at all that Sue's abusive ex-husband, Jim, could have had anything to do with this. He said that Sue was very careful to never give Jim any information about where she and the kids lived or how to contact them. And I have to stand by this. I have to stand by the fact that Sue probably did everything she was able to do to keep her kids safe and provide for them as best as she could. Her whole reason for moving to Ketty in the first place was so that she could be closer to family and to give her kids a life that was better for them and to try to be away from her abusive husband who clearly didn't want to be with them either because he kicked them out. So I believe her brother when he says he does not think that the the kids' dad, Jim, had anything to do with this. Um, It was at about this time in the beginning processes that detectives finally arrive to start photographing the crime scene and they start collecting evidence and going door to door to collect information. And this kind of continues on for the next several days. The crime scene itself was absolutely brutal. There was blood everywhere. Some of the murder weapons were still in the living room and there were definite signs of a struggle Some of the couch cushions were on the floor. There was blood spatter on the walls. There were blankets on the floor. There there was evidence that a real struggle happened here. Three bodies were found in the living room of cabin 28. The body closest to the front door was that of John, who is Sue's oldest son, the the 15-year-old son. Um, He was laying on his back with his hands bound tightly on the top of his chest with medical tape, and his ankles were also bound with medical tape. There was also reports that say there was a white fabric that was used to tie his hands too, but that the medical tape was what was primarily used, and his cause of death officially was having his throat slashed. 
The body lying in the middle of the living room was the body of John's 17-year-old friend, Dana. Dana's head was resting on one of the couch cushions that had been pulled off of the couch onto the floor. He had multiple head injuries and was manually strangled to death. And the body that was the furthest away from the door on the other side of the living room was the body of Sue. She was laying on the ground with her wrists bound in front of her with medical tape. Her feet were wrapped with an electrical cord, and she was gagged with a pair of her own underwear and a bandana. She was naked from the waist down and was covered up with a blanket that was later thought to have come from her daughter Tina's bedroom. She had stab wounds to her chest and neck, and she had the imprint from the butt of a gun on the side of her head. There are some conflicting reports on what kind of gun was used to bludgeon her. Some reports say that it was some kind of rifle, and some reports say that it was a BB gun. So some of the murder weapons were left at the crime scene, like I said. Laying on the floor was a regular kitchen knife, um, like a, like a steak knife, um, but it, it had been used with so much force that the blade of the knife was bent to like a 90-degree angle. There was another knife that was found. It was a larger knife. It's like a, a French knife or what most people would call a butcher's knife. So that knife was on the floor as well. And there was a bloodied hammer found in the cabin. Um, forensics later suggested that because of the varied blunt force injuries on the bodies, a second hammer of a different size and shape sh should have also been used during the murders. But that hammer was missing. The second hammer would actually later be found in a trash bin not far from cabin 28. And then the last murder weapon was the rifle that I said was used to bludgeon Sue, but it was not at the crime scene either, and the rifle has never been found. I also want to add in a quick, like, disclaimer here. It's just, it's something that doesn't make sense to me. Um, the electrical cord that was used to tie up the victims, it was used in kind of a weird way. It wasn't tied very tightly, and it would loop one victim to the next. For example, the cord that was lightly wrapped around Sue's hands, it connected to her feet as well, and the cord that was loosely wrapped around John's feet was looped around Dana's feet as well. The cord it seemed like it didn't really serve any purpose to actually tying up the victims or strangling them. It was just something weird that I noticed. I mean, it like I said, it just didn't really serve a purpose. I mean, they used medical tape to tie them up. Dana was manually strangled. John had his neck slashed. So it's not like they used the cord to strangle them. It it just kind of seemed like an afterthought. I, I don't know, but we'll move on. Like I said, between the three of them, the victims had been bludgeoned, strangled, and stabbed. This is something that really stood out to me because typically a singular killer doesn't use so many different types of ways to kill their victims. What I mean by this is a killer might use one or two different tactics, whether it be stabbing and then shooting or strangling and then shooting, um, but bludgeoning with a rifle, bludgeoning with two different hammers, and stabbing with two different kind of knives, in addition to the binding and gagging, suggests to me that there has to be more than one killer. I have no questions in my mind that this was not a one-man job. So as I go through the cases for the podcast and try to unravel the stories, I'm constantly asking myself questions throughout the process. This helps me to try and kind of insert myself into the story and think critically about the evidence that's available. So at this point of the case, 
these are the questions that I'm asking myself. One, if the goal was to straight up murder all three victims, why go through so much trouble of tying all three of them up by their hands and feet? Was killing them an afterthought or was it something that just escalated when the victim started to fight back? Two, why did they take Sue's 12-year-old daughter, Tina? Was there some specific motive to taking her and not the younger boys? Because remember, the younger boys were still in their bedroom. Three, if their motive was to kill Tina as well, why didn't they just kill her at the cabin along with her mother and brother and Dana? And four, why didn't the killer or killers go into the other bedroom that was literally right next to the living room? They clearly were able to find Tina, who was allegedly in her bedroom at the time of the murders, so why not check the other bedroom, the bedroom with the youngest boys and Justin? So let's actually talk about Justin for a second. Justin, if you remember, is the boy who was staying the night with the two younger boys, Rick and Greg, and all three of those boys were found safe and sound in the bedroom off of the living room, and Sheila went in and helped them escape through the window. So let's talk about him. After the murders happened, all three of the young boys were obviously questioned by police to see if they remembered or saw or heard anything that night. Rick and Greg, Sue's youngest two sons, they both said no, that they didn't see anything, they didn't hear anything, they were both asleep all night long. And at first, Justin says that he was asleep as well, but he says that he had a disturbing dream. He said that he dreamt that Sue and John and Dana were all being attacked on a boat by two men, one with short hair and one with long hair and glasses and a mustache who was swinging a hammer. In this dream, he says that John and Dana seemed like they were drunk, and the two men threw them overboard. He describes seeing a body on the boat as well, but that the body was covered up with a blanket, and when he flipped up the blanket, and when he lifted up the blanket, it was Sue, and she had been stabbed in the chest. But he insists that this was all just a bad dream. So, of course, he had so many details in his quote-unquote dream that did fit the crime scene, so they wanted him to take a polygraph test. It wasn't until police asked him to take a polygraph test that he said that none of this was a dream, and he actually thought that he did wake up during the attack. Just another side note here, I have no idea why they would need him to take a polygraph. He's a kid. It seems like the results of the polygraph would be all over the place just for the simple fact that he's a child. And in addition to the fact that polygraphs are completely useless, they're inadmissible in court, I could go on all day long about polygraph tests. But when Justin tells the police that he thinks maybe he did wake up during the attack, he says this. There was a noise in the living room that woke him up, so he went to the bedroom doorway. He described seeing two men um, that were standing in the middle of the living room. One had glasses and one had brown hair and was wearing army boots. And he says that Sue was laying on the couch at this time. He said that when John and Dana came in the front door, John started arguing with the men in the living room and a physical altercation broke out. It was at this time that Dana supposedly bolted through the kitchen that was off of the living room and tried to run out the back door. One of the men hit John on the head with a hammer, and Sue went to John's side to help him. This is when Justin says he stopped watching and hid behind the bedroom door. Around this time, 
the men were starting to tie John and Dana up, and Tina, who apparently woke up to the commotion as well, came out from her room with one of her blankets to see what was happening. He says that both men took Tina out the back door, and one of the men returned briefly before leaving again. This is a story that came from Justin, so there's a lot of gaps. There's a couple things that don't really make sense, but there's a lot of information that police could take away from it. From Justin's eyewitness account of these men, police created a rough sketch of what they looked like. Um, I'll actually post the composites on my Instagram page so you can see the composite sketches there. As I'm sure you true crime fans can imagine, a lot of valuable evidence in the cabin was potentially contaminated by the traffic going in and out of the cabin and was then unable to be used later in the investigation. Literally, when I was researching this case, as soon as I read that not one but two police officers went into and around the cabin before proper investigators arrived, I was like, okay, cool, so they just contaminated the crime scene. Guys, if any of you ever find yourself in a horrible situation like this, unless you're trying to literally save someone's actual life, do not touch anything. Not only do you want to save yourself from being linked to the crime, but you also don't want to contaminate any evidence that would possibly prove who did do the crime. And to make matters even worse, more evidence was contaminated later on due to flooding that occurred in the police station months down the road. So starting all the way back from the preliminary reports and the investigations, information between reports does not add up at all. Not all of the beginning reports are available, but there's reason to believe that police claimed they didn't know about Tina and that they didn't know that Tina was missing, despite being told by Sheila at the crime scene and later on by Justin, who mentions Tina in his report about what he saw. So there are rumors that say that the police kind of edited their initial reports to make it seem like maybe that they didn't know Tina was missing is not an okay thing to do at all because it gives an incorrect account of when they actually started looking for Tina. Rather than admitting that they forgot about Tina or whatever, they tried to make it seem like they literally didn't know about her at all until later. I don't know how much validity there is to all of that, but it is interesting considering it took them a while to start searching for Tina. There were two primary suspects that came into the picture really early on in the investigation. These two are the ones I'm going to be focusing on just because there are so many other weird rabbit holes. So I'm just going to try to focus on these two, on these two suspects. One of them is Marty Smart, who is Justin's dad. Like I said earlier, the Smarts lived two cabins down from cabin 28, so Marty would have been able to get to and from the scene really quickly without causing too much suspicion. Marty had a potential motive to want to get rid of Sue, too. Sue was good friends with Marty's wife, Marilyn, and the two of them would talk frequently and would confide in each other or gossip while their kids hung out. Marilyn would often talk to Sue about her marital problems with Marty and about how Marty was abusive and had a bad temper and would stay out until all hours of the night and so on. And apparently Sue would basically just be a good friend and tell Marilyn that she deserved better. And she encouraged Marilyn that if at any moment she wanted to leave Marty, that Sue would be there to support her. 
The theory goes that Marty was angry with Sue at the time of the murders because Sue was talking to Marilyn about their marriage and the possibility of divorcing Marty. This, again, would have given him motive to want to get rid of Sue just because she was a woman who was practically a stranger to him coming into his home and bashing on his marriage. A few weeks before the murders, a man named John Bobede, he moved into Marty and Marilyn's house and was sleeping on their couch. John was someone who Marty knew from years ago. They both attended the same rehabilitation hospital for some PTSD they had. Um, They were both suffering from PTSD as a result of the Vietnam War, and he had a known criminal record. I know that John has the same name as Sue's son, John, so from this point on, I'm going to refer to this John as Sketchy John, so as to keep them separate. On the night of the murders, Marty, Sketchy John, and Marilyn decided to go to a local bar and get some drinks. They stopped by Sue's cabin on their way and asked her if she wanted to join them at the bar, but she said no, so they went without her. The bar that they went to was actually where Marty worked as a chef. Eyewitnesses at the bar remember Marty being really angry about the music that was being played at the bar that night. He complained to one of the bartenders, who was one of his friends, and he also complained to the manager. The three of them left the bar and went back to their cabin where Marilyn got ready for bed and soon fell asleep. Marty was apparently still so worked up about the music that was being played at the bar that he called and complained to the manager again before he and Sketchy John just decided to go back to the bar and have some more drinks anyways. And, okay, I know that drinking doesn't in any way make someone a murderer of three people, but at this point... I mean, think about it. You have a man who is known to be violent and abusive to his wife. He has PTSD. He has a buddy with him who has a criminal record as well. They're drinking alcohol, and he's showing signs of irritability. I mean, it's it's all just kind of making a really bad soup at this point. If these two men were hypothetically to join forces and take out Sue and her kids, it would, it would one fit the thought that the murders were carried out by more than one person, and two, it would explain why the room that Justin was sleeping in was left basically untouched because because Justin's dad was the one doing the murders. Another reason that people think the evidence points to Marty and by extension Sketchy John as well is that the hammer that was found in the trash can not too far from the scene, the hammer that was thought to be one of the murder weapons, It matched the description of a hammer that Marty reported had been taken. Also, Marilyn and Marty reportedly decided to separate the day after the murders. Another weird coincidence, Marty was apparently close friends with the local sheriff. During the investigation, both Marty and Sketchy John were asked to take polygraphs, and it was determined that there was no reason to think that they were involved with the murders. But when Marilyn was interviewed, she told police that Marty could not stand Sue's son, John, and also that Marty was burning something in their fireplace in the early mornings of April 12th. So at this point, Marty and Sketchy John seem like really great suspects, but there's a couple problems with this theory. One of the problems I have with this theory is this. If Justin really did get a good look at these men, wouldn't he have known it was his dad? And if it was his dad... Wouldn't he either A, tell the police that it was his father, 
or B, just keep his mouth shut about the entire thing and just stick with the narrative that he was asleep the whole time like the other two boys. He could have easily stuck with the other boys and say that he was asleep during the attack. And also, if Marty did kill Sue, John, and Dana, why on earth would he do it on a night when his son was staying the night at their house, literally feet away from where he was brutally murdering these people? Why wouldn't he wait for a night when his son was safe at home and avoid including his son in this mess altogether? Keep in mind, while all of this speculation was going on, the search for Tina was still underway. And the search for Tina would continue with no clues for years. About three years later, in April of 1984, a local person came across a human skull and some other bones in the woods located about 30 or so miles from the Ketty Cabins in Feather Falls, California. The skull was later confirmed as being Tina's, and it looked like it had been there for a really long time. There were only a few other bones, which supports the theory that it had been there so long the animals and other vegetation and weather conditions probably scattered the rest of the remains. Police believe that her body was probably dumped there very shortly after the other murders. So fast forward to 2010. Nobody had been convicted for the Ketty Cabin murders, and it was considered a cold case. Investigator Mike Gamberg, who had been around when the murders first took place, decided to open up the case and re-go through all of the evidence and all of their files and all of the transcripts from all the interviews, everything. It was in his second run-through of the evidence that he finds even better pieces of evidence against Marty Smart. He found conflicting information from the interviews with Marilyn compared to the interviews with Sketchy John and Marty. For example, Marilyn says that she was asleep when Sketchy John and Marty got back from the bars the second time that they went. So she couldn't say what time they got back. She, she has no idea what time they arrived. She couldn't corroborate any sort of alibi for them because she was asleep. Marty and Sketchy John, on the other hand, they said in their interviews that Marilyn could back them up on what time they got back to the house because she was awake when they got back. Had investigators paid attention to this inconsistency, they, they wouldn't have thought that Marilyn could corroborate their alibi, which would have made them continue to ask questions because they had no one to corroborate their alibi. So that's just, that's just one example of the inconsistencies. But the even bigger thing that I want to point out was a letter that was found in evidence written from Marty to his wife, Marilyn, that was found. And it's kind of a long letter, but the part that really matters is at the bottom of the page, it says this, quote, I've paid the price for your love. Now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through? Great. Well, let's talk about that for a second. What does that mean? You know, like I knew that, I know that they were, you know, they were separating and they were going through the divorce and Marilyn really wanted out of the relationship. So this note is really telling. I mean, is, is this a confession? Is this a confession? I've, I've paid the price for your love. Now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Four people's lives, you know? And, and it also makes me start to question Marilyn at this point. Was Marilyn somehow involved in this? Because he's, he's basically saying, like, I've bought your love with four people's lives. Was this a favor that Marty did for Marilyn? 
Marilyn, of course, says that she never remembers receiving this letter and that she's never read this, but that the handwriting did look a lot like her husband's handwriting. So my other question is, why did it take until 2010 for this piece of evidence to be found? It was sitting in their evidence boxes for, for decades. Well, Mike Gamberg, who was the investigator, he was around when the murders first happened, but he wasn't one of the main investigators assigned to the case. A more chilling fact is that when the case was fresh, Mike Gamberg was told that if he meddled in the case, that he would be fired. I don't know about you guys, but that smells to me like a cover-up of some kind. Remember, Marty Smart was friends with the sheriff at the time of the murders. I don't know if, if that's a good enough reason not to pursue someone for three, possibly four murders, but it definitely looks fishy. The even worse part about all of this... Marty and Sketchy John had both died at this point, so there was nothing that Investigator Gamberg could do. So that's the story about Marty and Sketchy John, and that seems to be the, the biggest lead that investigators had. Of course, there's a couple rabbit holes, so I'll go over like two of these other rabbit holes, but they don't really seem as likely. Some of the other theories about what could have caused the murders, one was a theory that the whole thing was just like a drug deal gone bad, that Sue had a drug problem and she had invited a couple men over to, to bring her drugs and it just, you know, a fight broke out and things just ended badly due to that. But there's a lot of holes in that theory, way more holes than there is in this other one. Um, there's another really upsetting theory that, that poses the question that maybe Sketchy John was sexually abusing Tina and that Sue found out that he was abusing Tina and she was threatening to go to the authorities. And that's why Sketchy John and Marty took Tina and killed Sue. And then killing John and Dana was only collateral damage because they walked in on them killing Sue and that Tina was the goal all along. This theory, of course, it can't be disproven because Tina's body was completely decomposed when she was found, um, but I, I think it's a less likely story um, just because Marty, Marty would have no reason to participate in them taking Tina. If this was all, if it was just Sketchy John trying to take Tina and he asked Marty to just tag along and helping them kidnap Tina, what is his prerogative? Like, why, why would he want... Why would he want to involve himself in that? I mean, he has nothing against Tina. She's a 12-year-old girl, unless he's just crazy. But again, the more likely theory is, is the one that I spent time explaining, which was, which was that Marty and John were angry at Sue and, yes, all of that. So as the years have gone on, newer sheriffs and local officials now admit that the initial investigations were really disorganized and were not conducted correctly, and that essential evidence could have been looked over in the beginning as a result. So, it's one of those cases of, you know, if things were handled correctly the first time around, who knows? I mean, we could have solved, we could have solved this with beyond a shadow of a doubt if everything was just handled correctly from the get-go, and unfortunately, we see that a lot with these cases, and, you know, did police just just forget about Tina being missing? Like, why did it take them a couple of days to start looking for her? Why was she not 
you know, she was the only person who they didn't know for sure if she was dead or alive. So why did they not make it a priority to find her on the chance that she was alive? Um, the case of the Ketty Cabin quadruple murder is still technically considered an open case. It's still technically under investigation, but it runs pretty cold at this point because, like I said, the main suspects are dead and the cabin isn't even there in- anymore. The cabin, Cabin 28, was demolished in 2004. So this case has gotten quite a bit of publicity. Um, I know BuzzFeed Unsolved did a short series about this case. I think there's been one or two documentaries about this case as well. I watched one of them, but I believe there's another one. This case supposedly was the loose basis for the movie Strangers, if you ever saw the movie Strangers. And it really does harken back to like old campfire stories of staying in cabins and, and strangers and bumps in the night and things like that. There are so many loose ends. The thing that I keep turning back to after everything, after reading everything and doing this whole thing, the the part that I can't stop thinking about is Tina. Why was why was Tina taken and everyone else was killed right there on site? What was it about Tina? What was the benefit of taking her or did she escape? Did she run out and and they just caught up with her later? What are the questions that you have about this case? What is the part about this case that keeps you up at night or the detail that you just can't get over? So that's it for me this week, guys. Please remember to rate and review this podcast. It only takes a second. I would really, really appreciate it and love the feedback. Please follow me on my Instagram and my um, Twitter page. My Instagram is Taurus. My Twitter is Taurus. I'm on SoundCloud. I'm on Apple Podcasts. Um, I would really love the rate and review. Make sure you comment what what cases you want to hear next. And until next time.